Good morning. Good morning. So let's begin class with prayer today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us. May we draw closer to you, understand your kingdom more fully, be more effective in sharing with others. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson on number 12 in the quarterly, um, The Holy Spirit and Spirituality. And the uh, title of this week is The Work of the Holy Spirit. And just before we get into the lesson, I received an email this week from an online listener, Robert Reisvig, uh, with the uh, quote from one of the founders of our church regarding unity and about the unity we experience uh, in the church. And this is found out of manuscript release uh, 24, 1892. And it says, We cannot then take a position that the unity of the church consists of viewing every text of Scripture in the very same light. I thought that was really good. Uh, When, as individual members of the church, you can love God supremely and your neighbor as yourself, there will be no need of labored efforts to be in unity, for there will be oneness in Christ as a natural result. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah, I thought that was really good. And that's, of course, what we're talking about, God's love and how it transforms the heart. Sunday's lesson, um, in our quarterly, the first paragraph states, Jesus has called the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, a word rich in meaning and one that conveys the idea of helper, advocate, and comforter. The Holy Spirit does not enter into this important work of conviction as the accuser of the brethren or as the prosecute, or as our prosecutor. He is sent by Jesus not to condemn us, but rather to help us see our need of grace. And, and isn't that well said? The Holy Spirit is not our accuser. Who is the accuser? That's correct, Satan. Now, what's the difference between an accuser and a convictor of sin? The Holy Spirit is to convict of sin, it says. What's the difference between an accuser and a convictor? It's one of motive, if you think about it. And purpose. The accuser wants to, if they accuse to the sinner themselves, accusing you of something, the reason they accuse you of something is to manipulate you with guilt, to get you to feel bad, to pull back, to, to get something, to get, get some action out of you. So they accuse you, if they accuse you directly. So one way people accuse is to accuse the sinner themselves to get them to do something, primarily with guilt and shame. The other is the accuser will accuse, other, accuse you to others to get you in trouble, to prove you are deserving of punishment, that you're not worth a certain position to get others to take action against you. That's what the accuser wants. To, to somehow either injure you in your own mind, to cause you guilt and shame and pull back, or to get others to somehow take action against you. That's what the accuser does. Conviction, though, is brought to the heart and mind of the person who is in the wrong for the purpose of converting, healing, restoring, and saving the person. To get them to realize, hey, this isn't working. This is unhealthy. You know what? I need to, I need to change. And going to, of course, Christ for the power and the wisdom to change. There's a great distinction between accusing and convicting. Second paragraph says, only a comforter will be received as a helper. Helper. It is a great tragedy that Christians, however well-intentioned, often approach sinners with an accusing spirit rather than a helping one. If we go around pointing out sin in the lives of other people, then we do something that Jesus has not called us to do. After all, who are we to point out sin in others when we 
we are hardly sinless ourselves. You agree? Disagree? Why do people do this? Become accusers. And, and I think the context here is accusing others, pointing out their sin in accusatory ways. Why do people do this? What would cause people to do this? Yes. Sometimes anger in, in your life, maybe you're angry at a situation and the reason I speak from experience, I did this last week. Somebody blew off a gun and at 11.30 at night, a very loud gun. It was my next-door neighbor, and I went over there, and I was not convicting. I was accusing. I was mad, and I should have waited. Okay, well, wait a second. Let's take this example you gave, because they actually shot the gun, and you said you went over and confronted them about it. Now, but 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 it, it, you know, is that an accusation? Well, the way I did it was very not particularly Christ-like. I would suggest there's a difference between dealing with objective reality and then accusing people. Oh, I seriously, yeah. Okay. Hey, you just shot a gun off at eleven o'clock at night. What were you thinking? Were people sleeping around here? I don't. I don't. See, I, I, don't I don't see that necessarily as an accusation. That, that's just a, an observation of fact and helping inform them of consequences to their behavior that they may not be aware of in the community. And I did apologize. I gave a note, but, but I know that it's, it seems like you, in accusing, its emotions get all tangled up in it. Uh, I would think there's a lot of truth in that. People can accuse. One, one reason I think you're probably trying to allude to is when we see the fault in others. Jesus actually mentioned, take the beam out of your own eye before you get the speck of your other eye. In other words, you're accusing other people of having a problem that you have in your own life. It's, and in psychiatry, we call this projection. You take your own stuff and you project it on anybody else and you attack them for it. And their problem may be 1% of, the, of what you're struggling with. So what one is, is an immaturity to deal with one's own self and look in the mirror, and, and you have some part of your own self you're not at peace with. Your own conscience is convicting you, but you're not mature enough to own it, and so you're denying that you've got that problem, but you're not at peace with it. You're un, uneasy with it. And then when you see somebody else doing it, you take all your frustration and anger out on that other person, and you accuse, and you attack. It's an itself. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. What the, the accuser wants you to change without you being wanting to change just what you just have to change to fit in versus to have a conviction or be aware that you need to change that it's your choice versus they're forcing you to yes and so what what causes people to want to use those methods of pressure to force people into conformity if you remember the moral decisions and the level of moral development people at level four and below are rules oriented impose laws not design law stuff and this is this is the operation of elementary school kids. And if you think about, remember, kids in elementary school, they're very, very into the rules. And if you break rules, what, what do you have a lot of in elementary school? Tattletales. Lots of tattletales. They're always monitoring everybody else's behavior for who breaks the rule. And you're going to tattle on the person because, because it's not fair. If I have to keep the rule, then they should have to keep the rule. And somebody needs to hold them accountable. And there needs to be accountability. And there needs to be judgment. And there needs to be punishment. And there's a lot of... Christians that operate on this level and they become tattletales in the church and they're constantly watching because, you know, I have to keep the Sabbath and I have to have my TV off and you're, you're, you didn't have your TV off by sunset and, and I can't believe that. And, and, and instead of having an attitude of love and understanding how reality works, it much more becomes monitoring a behavior. And they believe that God operates that way too. Yes, they do. So there are times, however, I want to point this out, where it is proper, and I want to say, what are the times and places that we are to speak to people about the sin in their life? 
What are those times and places? Because is the lesson suggesting we should never actually approach somebody and talk to them about sin in their life that we can see and it's obvious? It's not suggesting that. It's talking about not becoming an accuser. Okay? What are the times and places when we do talk to people? How do you help an institution that is working at a maturity level much lower than what it should be to move from one maturity level to another? So you said help an institution. Yeah, this is working on a very... Yeah. Okay, this is a great question because it allows us the opportunity to step back and say, is there a difference between institutions and individuals? So if an institution is working at an individual, I mean... Right. Institutions, as far as I've been able to assess throughout history, never rise above level four. <laughs> they never do. Institutions always stop at level four. Because if they go beyond level four, then the institution becomes meaningless. Right, because why? Above level four is level five. Level five is love for other people. And level five means sacrificing self for others. Greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. But you saw 2,000 years ago, the institutional leadership said it is better for one man to die than the institution, than the nation. And people who are in positions of responsibility have in their mindset, our responsibility is to protect the institution. We have to protect the institution from degradation with bad principles and wrong standards. And and level four people are very much um, uh, into doctrinal definitions and write rules and lists of behavior, and they actually gravitate toward leadership positions in institutional settings. And so I've never seen an institution on earth that actually rises above level four. Now, individuals in the institution do, but at the end of the day, I've never seen an institution that comes along and say, we're willing to sacrifice the institution so we can save this person. Rather, we'll disfellowship the person so we can protect the reputation of the institution. I think you, if you saw a need for a real intervention because someone's fixing to have a train wreck, so to speak, in, you know, in danger of others and themselves or herself, then you may want to act on someone whose behavior is just out of control. So, so how to intervene? And right. So, so let, let me finish the point with him, and then we're going to go on to the point you're making because you're making a great point, and that is how you change an institution is not by trying to change the institution. You change the institution like Christianity changed Judaism and Rome in the first century. And that was by person to person to person. And when the institution is made up of people who all have maturity levels of five and above, then the way the whole organization functions changes. But you can't change it by going to the institution saying, we're going to have a new policy, we're going to have a new uh, program, we're going to have a new regimented system. Because by, by using those methods, it's only reinforcing the methods of level four and below. So it only happens by changing hearts and minds. And that's why that's the whole mission of the church. The church is organized to come together so we can have resources to go out and reach individual people. So now to the question, how do we, what are the times and places that we actually do speak to somebody about sin in their life that we see it? As I was thinking about this, this is what I came up with. And that is, it's only when we have a legitimate, loving, relational responsibility to that person. A legitimate, loving, relational responsibility to that person. So, parents to their children. And you see your child doing something that's sinful, you have a responsibility to to intervene, discipline, counsel, talk with. But if you think about your parent 
uh, parent relationship to your child and you see a child in sin, you're not going to accuse them to condemn, to embarrass. You actually want to protect their reputation. You want to steer them away from what they're doing because you see they're destroying themselves. So the intervention is not one of accusation. It's counsel and, and wisdom and perhaps discipline. Siblings. Siblings can talk to their own siblings. There's a relationship there. Um, friends, a genuine friend can go to a friend and say, hey, you're my friend and I see what you're doing is hurting yourself. You're warping your character. You're searing your conscience. You're destroying your marriage. You're, you're hurting yourself. I love you too much to stand by silently while, while I see this going on. A doctor and their patient. I can tell you with a lot of my patients, they're doing things that are destructive or being tempted to do destructive things, and I counsel them and try to point out why it's harmful to them for doing these things, and there's a responsibility I have to do that for them. And then perhaps, I think there are times, a church member with a concern for the welfare of others in the church. But here's a counsel from First Testimonies 166. I've seen the great sacrifice which Jesus made to redeem man. He did not consider his own life too dear to sacrifice. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. Do you feel when a brother errs that you could give your life to save him? When you see a brother in the church erring, do you feel you would give your life to save him? If you feel thus, you can approach him and affect his heart. You are just the one to visit that brother. But it is a lamentable fact that many who profess to be brethren are not willing to sacrifice any of their opinions or their judgment to save a brother. There is but little love for one another. A selfish spirit is manifested. You see, they're not even willing to sacrifice their opinion to approach the brother. They want to approach with condemnation. And that's when you shouldn't do it. It's only if you have that love that you're willing to, to reach out. So there's a place. Third paragraph. It says, we are his witnesses, not his prosecutors. We are called to be witnesses of his redemptive power, not to condemn others for their wrongs. In trying to convict other people of their sins, we assume a work that is not ours. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the difference between a witness and a prosecutor? The burden of proof. What is the difference between a witness... And a prosecutor, does the witness have the burden of proof? What is the role of a prosecutor? Have the burden to tell the truth, ah. the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Okay, a witness is a witness to what they know to be true. Whatever it is, whatever it is they know. What is the role of the prosecutor? To convict, to force, to present evidence at a judgment. So, to manipulate the truth. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The prosecutor on all earthly governments and even in the great controversy, the accuser and the one who prosecutes in, in the context of those who are bringing allegations against God's people, they always manipulate the truth. And if you're a prosecutor for life, I will guarantee you, you manipulate the truth. If you don't have to turn over an exculpatory piece of evidence, many prosecutors will not. If it's not required by the rules, they play by the law and by the rules, but if the rules don't require it, they don't go out of their way. If, if they suspect, you know what, if we investigate that, we might find something exculpable. But because I really think this guy's guilty, and I don't want to give them an opportunity to get off, so I'm not going to bring that piece of evidence in. They don't want the whole truth. They want enough evidence to get their conviction. This is what they want. So that manipulation of the, of the truth and the facts. Yes? The attorney does the same thing. Of course they do. For the evidence that gives them... The defense attorneys in human systems. In the eternal reality, though, that's not true. It is an over, in the end, 
it will be an absolute, complete, 100% revelation of all true reality through all history. That's what's exculpatory. So in the end, there won't be any manipulation of truth at all by, the, by, by Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit. But on earthly systems, you're right. Um, what are we as witnesses, though, in the church to be witnessing about, or should I say, on whose behalf are we to be witnessing? Jesus. Jesus? Yes, absolutely. Um, we are not to be witnesses of other people's sins. Is that what Jesus called us to witness? I call you to witness to the sins of others. <laughs> How many think that's their role? I witnessed, I got a witness, I got to testify to the sin that I found out. Hmm. But we're witnesses of God's character, kingdom of love, and that is not just a verbal testimony. We witness by our practices, how we live. So what is the difference between a witness in, God, in the church at the seven levels of development? So level one, reward and punishment. They witness that we must obey God or God will punish. God is offended and angry if we do not obey. And only Jesus' life would satisfy, satisfy his offended holiness and wrathful response. So you better claim the blood of Jesus or God will punish. This is what we witness to. Level two, marketplace exchange. God rewards those who obey. And if you do the right rituals or worship on the right day or pray the right prayer for 30 days, then God will reward you with health and wealth. But if you don't, you don't get your reward. And if you do sin, God will make you poor and sick. Do you think that, that I'm kidding about this? I have many patients that come to see me. Why did God give my child cancer? What sin did I do that God is punishing me? Social conformity. God is fair and will only punish exactly what, you, uh, what people deserve. You can trust God to get it right. Level uh, four, law and order. God's law was broken and the law requires the death of any lawbreaker. God killed his son to uphold the integrity of the law and all who accept the legal payment of his son, God won't have to execute. But if you refuse the payment, God will not only execute you but torture you as much as your sins deserve before he kills you. This is level four. This is the most common view in Christianity, and it's the predominant view in, the, in, in most of the churches in this community. Level five, love for other. God, God loved us too much to let us go, so he sent Jesus to prove his trustworthiness and win us back to a love relationship with him. But if we refuse, God won't inflict punishment. He will let us go, and when the life giver lets go, we die, and God will be sad. Level six, principle-based living. God uh, does love us, and sent his son to win us to trust, but to also fix the terminal condition that Adam infected the species with. All who trust God will not only be reconciled in heart, but be transformed and conformed back to God's original design and live in harmony with God and his protocols for life. All who refuse die a terrible death as a result of unremedied sin in their lives. And level seven, friend of God, God knows... Um, no, level friend, a friend of God, they know that God not only loves us and provides a remedy through Christ, but has worked through Christ to secure the entire universe. All things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. With that in mind, consider this quotation from a book you might have heard of called The Great Controversy, page 36. It's quite profound. As you go back with these perspectives, these seven levels, and go back and read some of those writings, it's really mind-boggling. But this is uh, page 36. We cannot now... We, excuse me, we cannot know how much we owe to Christ for the peace and protection which we enjoy. It is the restraining power of God that prevents mankind from passing fully under the control of Satan. 
The disobedient and unthankful have great reason for gratitude for God's mercy and long-suffering in holding in check the cruel, malignant power of the evil one. But when men pass the limits of divine forbearance, that restraint is removed. God does not stand towards the sinner as an executioner of the sentence against transgression, but he leaves the rejecters of his mercy to themselves to reap that which they have sown. Every ray of light rejected, every warning despised or unheeded, every passion indulged, every transgression of the law of God is a seed sown which yields its unfailing harvest. The Spirit of God, persistently resisted, is at last withdrawn from the sinner, and then there is left no power to control the evil passions of the soul and no protection from the malice and enmity of Satan. What do you hear? What did you hear described there? Design law. law. Did you hear God uses power? How does God use power? To restrain and hold back evil. That's exactly right. Why does pain and suffering and death come upon the wicked? Why does it come? Because because God, God respects their choice to not be in their life, if that's what they insist on. And he is the source of all that's good and all that's healthy and, and, all that, and all that actually lives. God is the source of life. What moral level was being described by Ellen White in this passage? This is level seven. Exactly right. This is uh, not imposed law. This is design law. Exactly. Fifth paragraph says, The idea here is not that the Spirit will list specific erroneous acts. Instead, he goes to the, in, the most fundamental sin of all. Think about this, guys. The most fundamental sin. Fundamental means basic, okay? Unbelief in Jesus Christ. Our deepest misery and alienation consists not in our moral imperfection, but in our estrangement from God and our refusal to accept the one whom God has sent for the purpose of rescuing us from this condition. There's a lot of good in that paragraph. And they actually quote the uh, uh, reference, John 16.9, which states the Holy Spirit comes, quote, in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, unquote. There's a Bible reference for this idea that the fundamental sin is not believing in Christ. Is the most fundamental sin not believing in Jesus, is it? James 2.19. Read it. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this. They tremble and tear. So James 2.19, the devils believe. It matters what Jesus you believe in. So, what about in heaven? Did the angels in heaven fall because they did not believe in Jesus? Did Adam and Eve fall because they did not believe in Jesus? So, is the issue when we say don't believe in, is the issue don't believe in his existence, don't believe in his position, or don't trust him. Is that the issue? Don't trust him. Okay, okay. So is that what the lesson is referring to, that maybe that they don't trust Jesus? Well, let's, let's use that then. Um, what if somebody doesn't trust Jesus? In fact, they don't even call him Jesus. They call him Joshua, or Emmanuel, or El Shaddai or Elohim, or maybe they call him the Great Spirit, or the Supreme Being. 
but the one that they're worshiping has the character like Jesus. Is it the name that they use that's important, the, 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 the syllables that come out of their mouth, or is it the character of the one they worship that's important? Uh, Wendell quoted out of James 2, the demons believed in Jesus, and every time one of the demons talked pretty much when Christ was around, they would say things like, we know who you are, son of the most high God, have you come? You know, right? Did, did they not believe in who he was, or did they believe? Does that mean because they believed this was the son of the most high God that they were saved? Didn't they have to become the torment before our time? Yes. What kind of Jesus did they believe in? Exactly, there you go. Jesus himself said in Matthew seven twenty one to 23, he said these words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Notice, this is not in the name of Buddha. This is not in the name of Hare Krishna. This is, this is not in the name of Muhammad. They're doing this in the name of Jesus. These are Christians. And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. To whom are these people praying? They're praying to Jesus, yet they're not saved. Why? Because they conceive of God in Jesus in a different character than what Jesus actually revealed. They don't know Jesus, and thus they might use the name Jesus, but they're not actually followers of Jesus. How about Jews that love the Father, but either don't acknowledge or they reject the Son? Brilliant question. Brilliant question. And how about the Buddhists? And how about the Muslims? And how about the pagans? How about all those people? Well, is the most fundamental sin not believing in Jesus? So we do not trust Jesus. Hmm. So let's read the last paragraph and keep this, this kind of discussion going. He really is. Let's, let's keep this discussion going. It says, the fundamental problem of all sin is that we do not believe in Jesus and thus reject the only one who can save us from sin, our sin and guilt. Thus the sin that puts self at the center of things and refuses to believe the word of God. Only the Holy Spirit can open the hearts and minds of, to our great need of repentance and of the redemption that is found through Christ's death in our behalf. True or false? What do you think? It depends on what you mean by the words. Um, if, if we mean by believe, trust in, if we mean by believe, you must accept, come to the cognitive awareness of, accept Jesus and say those words, then, then that mean, that's, that's not what, what it means. So let's see if we can give examples. Can any human being be saved? Any human being in all universal history after Adam's sin, can any human being be saved without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? No. No, not possible. The, the Impossible. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was a requirement for the salvation of any human being. We all agree. Okay? And why, why, why was that the case? What was it that Christ provided that without... Human beings couldn't be saved. And the Bible teaches two primary things. One was he revealed the truth that destroys lies and wins us to trust. And two, he provides a new humanity. He destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness that Adam put in humanity and, and developed a perfect human character that he offers as a free gift for all who accept it. 
That's why it says in Hebrews 5, 8, once he became perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. 5, 8, 9. Became perfect? I thought he was always perfect. He was always sinless. Sinlessness. But Bible perfection is about maturity of character. And Christ actually had to develop a mature human character by the exercise of a human brain, making choices with the human will to say no to selfishness, to say no to temptation, and to say yes to love, to develop a perfect humanity. God can create sinless beings, but character has to be developed by the exercise of the free will being. And no human being could do that after Adam's, no human being could do it after Adam's sin, except Jesus came and did that, which we could not do. So, yeah, the first question, nobody can be saved without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So what was Jesus' role? Jesus was the member of the God who partook of humanity to reveal the truth perfectly, expose the lies, and restore the species back into perfect harmony with God. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation? To convict our hearts of our terminal condition, convict us of our duty and our need, and when the heart is open, there's one more role. That's part of the conviction, revealing the truth that brings us to conviction. That's right. Uh, bring us to, but, but once our, we open a heart and trust, the Holy Spirit does one more thing. Transforms and regenerates. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So the Holy Spirit is Christ's representative, renewing us in Christ's likeness. He renews, he circumcises the heart by the Spirit. We're washed by the Spirit. We're cleansed by the Spirit. The renewing by the Spirit. Okay, So the Spirit, if you want to use this metaphor, Christ achieved the remedy to our condition. And without that remedy, we're all lost. The Holy Spirit applies the remedy into the hearts and minds of those who let him. And without the application, we're all lost. Okay, And so the role of the Spirit then we just talked about. So can a person be saved without the work of the Holy Spirit in their life? No, No, they cannot. Absolutely not. Can a person claim legal acceptance of the blood payment of Jesus, but never let the Holy Spirit into their hearts to renew them? Yes. Are such people saved? Daily. Are they saved? No, because salvation is not a legal process, and that won't save them. Can a person be enlightened to the truth of God's methods of love, truth, liberty, without ever hearing the historical Jesus, and therefore never making the public declaration and claim to be a follower of Jesus. Yet, they see God's methods as revealed in nature, Romans 1.20, and open their heart to the Spirit and experience renewal of heart, even though they've never heard of Jesus. Can that happen? Yes. Yes. So, a person can be saved without the verbal assent to accepting Jesus, but they cannot be saved without the Spirit applying what Jesus has done into their lives. And so you can see Romans two twelve through 14. Paul says, those not heard the law, the Torah, the scriptures, but do by nature the things contained in the law, law unto themselves, their conscience bearing witness, showing that the law is written on their heart. What's the new covenant in, in both Jeremiah and Hebrews? I will write my law on your heart. And who writes the law there? Which member of the Godhead? The Spirit. The Spirit is writing the perfect character of Christ into the, so it's no longer I that live. And there's a quote from Desire of Ages here in the lesson today for those who'd like to, to evaluate that talking about the uh, heathen who have done by nature the things contained in the scripture. All right, Monday's lesson, second paragraph. It says, unconverted people imagine that external, uh, external, external morality will suffice. They desire not the righteousness of God, but their own righteousness. They desire righteousness that comes from their outward acts, such as obedience to the law of God. But our acts of obedience to the law can never justify us before God. 
Our unconverted people, the ones they're talking about here, found only outside church membership? More commonly inside. Yeah. Or frequently inside church membership. <laughs> and unconverted. Yeah. Um, why will obedience to the law never justice, justify someone before God? Depends on the law. Right. Well, obedience is talking about trust. Okay, well, that's a good question. If we mean like the hypoqa in the New Testament translated obey, meaning a humble willing to listen and follow as the one leads, then we have a heart that trusts. That's a great, that's a great point. That is the obedience of a changed heart that is being set right. So that's a great point. I don't think the lesson's talking about that, though. I think lesson's talking about behavior performance, obeying what we do. Unless we're willing to obey, we won't be saved either. Unless we're willing to obey. So if we have a heart that says, I'm not going to obey, I don't have to obey, I'm not going to... And so the... We claim something that we would do not follow through with and truly believe and allow it to change us, then, then we can claim it. So maybe we should ask this question. What does it mean to be justified before God? Talking about the, the works of the law cannot justify you before God. What does it mean to be justified before God? Set right, right. To fix those sin problems. Yeah, I like we set right, live right, fix the sin problem. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, did he say, unless a man is justified, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven? What did he say? He's born again. Now, is being born again the same thing as justified? It depends on which moral level of development you're at. If you're level four and below, law and order, it is not. What is, if you go to the penal substitution theologians who are operating primarily at level four, what you will get from them is justification is this. So when you accept the legal payment of Jesus in your behalf, in heaven, God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. As far as the legal accounting mechanisms in heaven work, you are now considered and declared legally righteous even though you're still unrighteous. That is level four thinking. It's a legal problem in their mind. That is not being set right. That is not even what the Bible teaches. That's all an infection. I saw several hands. So go ahead. And we're going to come back to what the justification is in reality. Yes. The big thing is, if you guys, whether it's your doctor or your flight instructor, as long as you're under their tutelage and being under their care, and this guy's going to work with you, the doctor's going to work with you, it's you say, hey, I can land on the aircraft here without the instructions, we're going to crash and burn. You know, if we ignore what our doctor's saying, we're going to die of our cancer or, or infection. So as long as we have a relationship, Jesus doesn't lose anything. So both examples you gave are dealing with design law, laws of physics, laws of health, how reality actually functions. You deviate from those laws, there's always inherent consequence that is destructive to the deviant. The ruler who, who creates the laws and sustains the universe on those laws doesn't have to use his power to inflict the punishment if you land a plane into the side of the aircraft carrier instead of on the deck. Okay, you crash into the side. The, 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 the universal uh, ruler doesn't, doesn't have to take an action to bring a, it's inherent, built in. And this is why God's laws never change. Because to change God's law for one jot or tittle of the, of the law to change, the, the whole universe would come undone. Because these laws are, are what God has built reality to function upon. Yeah. May I read a, something out of Acts of Apostles? There are those who profess holiness, who declare that they are holy the Lord's, who claim a right to the promises of God while refusing to render obedience to his commandments. These transgressors of the law claim everything that is promised to the children of God, but this is presumption on their part. For John tells us that true love for God will be revealed in obedience to all his commandments. It is not enough to believe the theory of truth, to make a profession of faith in Christ, to believe that Jesus is no imposter, that the religion of the Bible is no cunningly designed fable. 
He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, John wrote, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keepeth his law, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. So what does it mean? Now you read the text. That's great. We heard the words. The key is, what does it mean? We have to be in union with God. Okay, in union with God. Great. What's it mean regarding the obedience portion of the commandments? What's it mean? It's a natural outworking of who we are. Ah, so can we make a checklist of what it looks like? Or if we're obeying God in union with his principles, that our behaviors may actually vary depending on the situation. As love would dictate. As love would dictate in fulfilling God's purposes. Or as maturity. What we seek is seek his guidance. Does the circumstance dictate the action? So a parent who loves their child, does the parent who loves their child only and always hug, praise, and give kisses? Does the parent perhaps sometimes do something the child might think is quite torturous? Maybe stick them in an ice bath if they got a fever of 106. Might the parent do that? And might the child think, why are you torturing me? This is horrible. Might a parent give vaccines to a two-year-old? Might the two-year-old go, thank you? Or might the two-year-old go, why are you torturing me? Does the circumstance dictate what love does? Now, notice all the actions we're describing are always in harmony with how design laws work to bring healing, to re-restoration, to do protection. But do the actions change based on the need? Does a parent treat the child with leukemia the same way they treat the child without leukemia? They treat them differently. Why do they treat them differently? Their needs are different. But the laws that govern their health are not different. They're the same laws. The paradigm that we're sharing, though, is not shared by everyone. It is exactly right. It's not shared by everyone. And thus, when, when you read that, um, I will tell you, a lot of people that I know historically have read that very passage, and they use it in an oppressive way, And to, coming back with, here's all the things you must do and not do. You must obey. You must behave this way. The bottom line is, though, when you say the commandments, if you love, you will keep my commandments. Well, what did Jesus say all the law hang upon? All law hangs upon two. What are the two? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, your neighbor as yourself. All law hangs on this. So the commandments, the primaries, are these two. All the others are secondary. Let me ask you this. Can I command you to love me? Can love be commanded? But wait a second. If you, obey, if you love God, you obey his commands, and his commands are to love, but you can't command love. How does that work? You see, we have... To elevate beyond level four. If you stay at level four, there's a contradiction and you get stuck. Once you move beyond level four, though, it would be like somebody commanding you, if you want to be healthy, you must breathe. Because the law requires, the law of respiration requires that you breathe. Why do, why do you have to breathe? Because that's how life is built, and it's the only way to be healthy. And when you understand the actual law, then, then there's not a problem to breathe. We want to breathe. It's, 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 it actually feels good to take a breath of fresh air. Oh, that feels really good. It feels bad to be in a room that's stale with old, nasty air, doesn't it? And you get outside in fresh air, and it feels good. When you understand how love works, it feels good to obey. One step farther, in Galatians 5, it says that the fruits of the Spirit, when you add all those up, at the end of it, it says, against such, there is no law. So, so that would be at level seven, where you actually got to, you're getting to a point where you've applied the remedy. And this is why, for instance, Rahab, if you were, if you were one of the two spies sent in by Joshua, Rahab, now put it in context, you are an ISIS terrorist in America today. 
That's who these people were to the, the people in Jericho. They were coming in to overthrow and destroy everyone in Jericho. That's what they were coming to do. So if you're a citizen of Jericho, you have the TSA watching out for these illegal aliens that are trying to invade your society, and you want a wall up to protect you, but the wall will come tumbling down. We know that. But you want that really, really, really beautiful wall up to, to protect you from these illegal aliens that are coming to do terrorist attacks against you and genocide against your whole people. Now, you're one of the two, that's who you are. And you're one of those two spying out the land. And Ray, and, and security forces have, have gotten wind that you're in town. And the FBI, the Homeland Security, they're hot on your trail. And so you're hiding now under the flax in the roof in Rahab's house. And the, they're knocking at the door. And as they're knocking at the door, and you're praying, are you praying, God, please, please help Rahab tell the truth? <laughs> Is that your prayer? Teach her to be honest in all things, Lord. <laughs> Seriously, think think that through. Now, where do we find Rahab in in Hebrews? Not yeah, we do find her in the Book of Faith. Absolutely, because I said in Hebrews, meaning she and what is she noted for? What what action she's noted for that? And one other thing, the lineage of Christ. Here's this prostitute that lies. In the hall of faith. Uh, but is she obeying? Or disobeying? How do we understand this? Thou shalt not bear false witness. The commandment is clear. If you read another white quote, she says, any, any form of deception, any, any action intended to deceive is a breaking of the commandment. Hebrews 11 doesn't commend her for lying. No, but she's not condemned for it anywhere either, is she? There's no condemnation for her lying anywhere either. Why is that? Here's why. If you understand the reality, Rahab put her life on the line to protect others. She exercised a faith in God, and she was willing to sacrifice herself to protect those other people. She recognized there was... God's people were the true people. She wanted to align with them. And by the way, there was a, there's another bigger story here for those who are willing. What do you think would have happened if all the people of Jericho would have taken Rahab's position? The whole city would have come out and said, we recognize that your God is the right God. We want to follow him. We want to humble our hearts, and we want to join your people. What do you think would have happened? Would they have been slaughtered? Or would... They would not have been. Rahab and her entire... It wasn't just Rahab. It was her entire family. Everybody that was in her house was brought into Israel and became part of Israel. Okay, this is a bigger lesson. Yes? You remember the backdrop. If, they, if the Israelites had not been so lack of faith, you wouldn't have this extra 30-some years of wandering. And people would not have been as callous, number two. I'm not sure if they're really supposed to send spies in. I'm not sure you that again. But these spies should have been... Wouldn't be like Jonathan Zarberg. Either God will protect us... Or will die as martyrs. You know, they put this lady in, in a bad position. Luckily, God worked with her despite them putting their lack of faith. So back to the topic. You're, I, I agree with everything you said. Back to the topic. What does it mean to be justified? And I really want you because we are so indoctrinated in this false legal justification idea, a declaration even though you're not. It, it's just the real justification. Brought back into harmony with God. Be, having your heart set right with God. What's the natural state of our heart, according to Scripture? Enmity to God. That's the natural state. We are against him. We're distrusting of him. It says, Abraham trusted God and then was recognized as 
righteous or set right. What came first? His trust in God, his heart that distrusted, was changed to a heart that trusted, and then God recognized him as being right or set right. That's what justification is, the heart being changed, not a record book being changed. Now, a medical record in heaven, the record of your life history, the record of what's transpiring inside your heart, mind, and character, the record of sinfulness is there, just like the record of pathology as cancer is growing, and we do the MRI, we have the record of the pathology, and so when you partake of the remedy, the records show how sick you were, the records show here's where you partake of the remedy, and the records show that the cancer has gone into remission. The records show that we were sick with sin. The records show that we trusted God and we opened the heart and the spirit came in and took what Christ has achieved and reproduced us. We are set right and the sin goes into remission. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. We're changed in the inner man. That's justification followed then by sanctification, the cleaning up and healing. Yes? The lesson says um, as the heart gets healed, um, the fear dissipates and hope and Christ takes its place. Yes, exactly. As you come to know him, that's exactly right. The primary motive of sin is fear. It's fear. Fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of punishment, fear of fear and guilt. I mean, these are the primary motives. Um, love casts out all fear. But we don't receive the love until we come to know God and trust him enough to open the heart. When we open the heart, Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. And we are changed by that. Um... There's, an, there's a quote, I'm not going to read this whole quote, it's out of Signs of the Time, March 25, 1897. It's in the, it's in the notes, for those who want to get the notes. I'll just read one, the one sentence out of it, talking about Christ's incarnation, it's a mystery in coming to earth, and so forth and so on. And it says, his sufferings perfectly fulfilled the claims of the law of God. His sufferings perfectly fulfilled the claims of the law of God. Do you immediately have understanding of that? Is it like, whoa, what does that mean? Claims of the law of God. Level four people? The law claims the life. The law must, uh, must, must, the death penalty must be paid. No. How do you understand God's law? Do you understand his law? There's protocols upon which life are built, the foundations of reality. And then what do the law, what does this law claim? It claims this is how life works. Okay? And it was only through his sufferings that he was able to eliminate the deviation from the design and restore the design, put the law back where it belonged. That's why. This is what the law claimed. This is how life works. And Christ revealed it and achieved it. And that's why we read in Desire of Ages uh, 762, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. And then I love this quote. It's out of that I may know him, page 78. The Lord Jesus loves his people. And when they put their trust in him, depending wholly upon him, he strengthens them. He will live through them, giving them the inspiration of his sanctifying spirit, imparting to the soul a vital transfusion of himself. Isn't that awesome? That's what happens. You're one to trust. So we talked about earlier, you open the heart, the spirit takes what Christ has achieved, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And this is what it means to be covered by the robe of righteousness. To be covered by the robe of righteousness is not a covering over a corrupt and sinful heart. It is a partaking of Christ so that Christ is reproduced within. That's why when the Father looks at those who are covered by the robe, he sees Christ's righteousness because Christ's righteousness is infused into the heart character of the believer. I guess one of the ways that I, I guess has changed my thinking looking at the robe of righteousness was is that because your heart has been changed... You're now called, you're no longer a slave. You're called a son, and therefore the king looks at you and like, oh no no you 
this is this is more fits you. Robe of righteousness because you, your heart has been changed by Christ that you receive his. The robe is a telling of your your I guess king kingship or your your so belonging in, to his family. You belong a son as a heir of his of his throne. So in the Bible, there are many metaphors. Yeah, one of them is the robe of righteousness. It's a metaphor. What is the reality behind the metaphor? Sanctification. And being identified as one of his children. So you being identified by the person in charge as one of his children. So I identify you, that means you have the robe. The robe is representative of legal status as an adopted person of this house, like the seal on the, uh, seal on the ring. And because of that, now you're legally identified as an adopted child. No. Well, yes. Okay, Christ Object Lessons, I think it's 311, says that when we trust Christ... And open our heart to him. The spirit comes and our thoughts are brought into unity to his thoughts. Our, our desires are merged with his desires. We live his life. This is what it means to be um, covered by the robe of righteousness. This is not a blood transfusion. This is a stem cell transplant. This is a, a if you want to use a computer metaphor, it is a software transfusion. It is an operating system, motive, drive, internal to us. It is not a covering over. That's a, a covering over aspect is a metaphor because the clothes are a reflection of the person. And so if you remember in, in uh, Zechariah when uh, the high priest Joshua was being accused, it says, take away his filthy garments, put on him clean white garments. See, I have taken away his sin. And so the, the, it's a metaphor for taking away the defects in our character and restoring us internally to perfection like Christ. That's, but that is not a... Uh, simply a legal status of being identified by the ruler as no, being... Because, because you're saying put him clothes that must, most fit him. Most fit him, like you just said. Like that's the robe of righteousness. But, but the robe of righteousness is a metaphor. The reality is the heart change. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I saw a hand somewhere else. Yes. You know, and when they lost walk with God, then they lost that robe of light, and they were naked, and they were ashamed. And, you know, and Jesus came, and he's, and he's crucified on, you know... In public, he's going to become naked for us, but he gives us a robe of righteousness. And the demoniacs, they give him clothes. God takes away our shame. I love that. He takes away all the defects. And yes, we, so we buy from Christ in Revelation. We buy. Remember? Money gives us. But we buy, right? What, what, do, we, what do we buy in Revelation? Clean clothes. The ISAV and the white raiment, we buy these things. How do we buy them? Well, there's two types of commerce. There is the type of commerce we have in our country where you actually use money. And then there was a type of commerce that happens where there is no money. It's called barter. You exchange something. And we must exchange our life of sin for his life of righteousness. We must exchange our terminal condition for his perfectly healthy condition. We must exchange our guilt for his purity. We cannot hold on to our sinfulness and be restored to righteousness at the same time. We must let go of that. And so we take what we have, which is the Bible metaphor, filthy rags, okay? And we exchange our filthy rags metaphorically for the perfect robe of righteousness. We exchange our corrupt character for his perfect character. This is the exchange. This is the deal. Okay. Now, in Monday's lesson, it says the righteousness that is demanded by the law is fulfilled by Christ. And it demands righteousness for the same reason that the law of respiration demands that you breathe. Because it is exactly how life is constructed. And if you don't have it, you can't live. 
He goes on to say, now Jesus lives to intercede for us and he applies the merits of his death in our behalf because we do not have the righteousness needed for salvation. When you read that, did you go, okay, I understand what that means. Or did you go, that's confusing. It applies the merits in our behalf? Well, first off, what are merits and where does it get applied? Well, what law lens are you looking through? Lens four and below of the, of the developmental level or five and above? Le- level four and below, merits equals, and those people, they'll tell you, merits equals the credits, the points, the payment, the righteousness, the, 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 uh, the blood, uh, what, what Christ has done. Uh, it's, it's some legal consequence that he's achieved by giving his perfect life, and those are his merits. Under the healing model, the design law, merits are the actual perfect character, the traits of character that he developed. That's what he achieved. Under the penal law, the, the, the merits are presented to God to earn favor. And I've got lots of quotes and lots of writings where people talk about, under the Catholic view, Jesus is in heaven during the Eucharist offering his sacrifice. And the Protestants argue, no, it's, uh, he, his, he, his sacrifice happened 2,000 years ago. When we confess our sins, he goes to the Father remind, offering his merits to remind him of the sins he's already paid for 2,000 years ago. But he's offering his merits, you see. Okay, so in the legal view, he's offering the merits to the Father to earn favor or forgiveness or points. Under the healing view, the merits, the character of Christ, is presented to us to win us to trust, to dispel the distrust and distorted ideas about God. Under the penal view, it's offered to earn pardon, offered to the ruling magistrate to earn the pardon. The payment's been made, you now need to pardon. Under the healing view, it's offered as a remedy to cure our hearts, to transform us, to us. Under the penal view, it is applied into the legal justice record-keeping system, the record books in heaven. In the design view, his merits are applied in us, that we actually become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says. And that's where the merits are applied, here, in us. So here's a quotation from one of the founders of our church. Consider how you most frequently understand this, and how would you explain it to someone who's coming to you to argue with what we teach? This is out of Lift Him Up, page 320. The world's redeemer possessed the power to draw men into himself, to quiet their fears, to dispel their gloom, to inspire them with hope and courage, and enable them to believe in the willingness of God to receive them through the merits of the divine substitute. As subjects of the love of God, we ever should be grateful that we have a mediator, an advocate, an intercessor in the heavenly courts who pleads on our, in our behalf before the Father. How do you explain that? This is a common one that you will get from people who have the view, he's in heaven pleading the Father, because if he wasn't there pleading the Father, the Father would be required by holiness and justice to use his power to punish sin, and he's there offering his merits as our intercessor, as our advocate, and and as our mediator before the Father. You've heard this? And what kind of picture of God does that give you? Satanic. That's exactly right. You notice she actually doesn't say pleading to the Father to turn away his anger or wrath. She doesn't say that. That's all read into it. She actually says pleading before the Father. To see if this quote gives any additional insight to how we understand the previous one. This is a second manuscript release, page 37. While Jesus, our intercessor, pleads for us in heaven, okay, so I think we're pretty close to the previous one because the previous one says, 
I'm grateful that we have a mediator and advocate and intercessor in heavenly courts who pleads in our behalf before the Father. In this one, Jesus, our intercessor, pleads for us in heaven. So I think we can say these are functionally pretty close things going on here. Everybody with me? So while he's pleading for us in heaven, notice these next things that's happening. The Holy Spirit works in us to will and do of his good pleasure. All heaven is interested in the salvation of souls. Now, would all heaven include the Father? Yes. God is for us. Who would be against us? God was in the Son, reconciled the world to himself, forgot to love the world. He gave his own. We've got lots of scripture. God is for us. So do we have the idea? And Jesus in John 16, 26 said, I will not pray the Father for you. The Father loves you himself. So if we have Jesus praying the Father to get him to be merciful, gracious, and kind, we're contradicting what Jesus said he was actually going to do. So we're going against Jesus' own words. So what do we understand here? Did it give you insight? He's intercessing, pleads for us, the Holy Spirit works in us. What's going on? Yes. For you know that are very focused on the legal model, you know, there's a jury and there's folks in the audience, and the good news at the very end, everyone's unanimously decide agree that this person is accepted Jesus. Yeah, throw the whole jury thing out. Just throw it out. Throw the whole jury thing out. That that keeps you stuck at level four. Don't even use that metaphor. It's level four. That's level four. Terrible. <laughs> throw it out. Throw it out, George. Jesus, we're allowed to transform ourselves to be more like him. Okay, what did Jesus say about in John 16 when he said, the spirit of truth will come? When he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will speak on his own, or he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. What did Jesus say? He will speak on his own, or he will not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears. Who do you think the Holy Spirit is listening to? Um, By the way, for those who don't know the scripture, it says he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. So if the Holy Spirit is speaking only what he hears, who is the Holy Spirit listening to to speak to us? Oh, so Jesus is before the Father pleading in our behalf. To whom do you think he's pleading? Who are the ones who doubt the goodness of God? Who are the ones who are consumed with guilt and think they're so sinful that God could never love them and they deserve to be punished? Who are the ones that don't understand that God loves them so much he sent his only begotten son? Who are the Jesus is in heaven pleading. And he's doing it before the Father because the, he's carrying out the Father's purposes. He, God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. Jesus was God's agent to fulfill God's purpose for the salvation of the earth and and the restoration of all things in the universe. And so, in heaven, he is before the Father, under the Father's sovereignty, if you will, carrying out the Father's purpose, pleading for us, and the Holy Spirit hears those pleas and communicates those pleas to your heart and mind so that we will recognize and trust him and come back and he'll heal us. Is this how it's typically presented? Well, this is the truth. We've been so corrupted by the penal system that we have turned it backwards, and we have Jesus facing the wrong way, and we have a Father we can't trust, and we, have, and we create doctrines that are designed to hide us and shield us from him. Man, there's a whole bunch more in the lesson I wanted to get to, and we're already out of time. I was going to get to what judgment really is, and the waging of the war, and, 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 how, and, and what the warfare really is. But it's all in the notes, and I break it down through the notes, so... Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you, you are for us. You love us so much that you sent your only Son and you are in Christ working to achieve your ends, to eradicate sin, to win us to trust, to destroy the lies. And we thank you so much that Christ is in heaven pouring out in, at, at, the, at the command center of the universe, uh, activating all the agencies in the divine government for our 
salvation, for our restoration, for our deliverance, we ask that the Spirit will come, enlighten our minds, clear away the the distortions and the misunderstandings, connect the dots in our thinking that we can see the reality of your character, your kingdom, your principles, and cooperate with you to share this message to a dying world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.